1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 58. Paul writes, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from stars in their splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there, is an <clears throat> if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Well, I wonder if you have um, chats around your table like we have chats around our table. Chats like 
what will our bodies be like in the new creation? Will we be able to fly? How old will I be forever in the new creation? I don't know whether from time to time you've um, got open one of your old photo albums, especially if you're a little bit older, perhaps, and, and you look back on decades that have gone before you, and there you are, a little bit older today. Have you ever had that thought of, I wonder at which point in my life God will freeze and then have for the rest of my life? Not that's for a show of hands, but I don't think we're the only family who've had those kinds of conversations. And as we've worked through this glorious chapter, we've been reminded of the certainty of Jesus' resurrection, it's the first third, and the centrality of the resurrection, it's the middle third, and now we're going to think, well, what would it look like in reality? Now, when you read verse 35, it sounds like the Corinthians were asking the same questions. How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? They sound like our kind of questions, don't they? But in the way that Paul answers them, we know that at least some in this church in Corinth didn't genuinely want to know the answer. Uh, that's why Paul says, literally in verse 36, you foolish person. The how foolish is, is missing off the fact that he's speaking specifically to them. You foolish person. Not because the question's foolish. In one sense, the question is a fair question, and we're going to see the answer to it. The problem was in Corinth, they weren't really convinced of the question in the first place. They didn't believe in some physical resurrection. And we thought of some reasons last week. If you're here with us, there's a, a pervading idea in the Greek philosophy of the day that Paul was writing to that would have people believe that the body was a tomb that you needed to be freed from in order to live forever in a spirit form. That was one view. Then there's also what you might call the traditional Jewish view. And that view did believe in a resurrection of the dead, but they believed that the body that was raised was identical to the body that died. So here's the Apocalypse of Barak, which I hadn't read before I prepared this week. But according to the Apocalypse of Barak, this is Jewish teaching, the earth shall then assuredly restore the dead, resurrection of the dead. It shall make no change in their form, but as it has received, so it shall restore them. Now, when you think about that, that's worse than flicking back through your photo album and wondering at what point in your life God is going to freeze frame for the rest of eternity. Because according to this view, you get rebuilt in the form that you had just before you died, which isn't really a very appealing thought, is it? And if that's the pervading view that's going around current, there's going to be a lot of people who perhaps are wrestling in disbelief about the fact that there would be a bodily resurrection of the dead. So they've got a different set of questions to us, but Paul's going to answer the same questions for us. And we could spend a month in this uh, glorious passage. Um, I don't know about you, but as Lee was reading, um, we got to verse 52. I had Handel's Messiah going through my mind. I mean, you could take a month just looking at glorious aspects of this chapter, but in, in one sermon this evening, we're going to look at three big ideas. Our resurrection bodies will be different. Our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus. And the hope of our resurrection bodies should change our lives today. That's where we're going to go 
this evening. We'll start verses 36 to 44 by seeing that our resurrection bodies will be different. When you look through the whole of this chapter, there's a, there's a fundamental assumption that Paul makes all the way through. Your body, my body now, is not capable of living forever with God in the new creation. I can't cope with a, an unfiltered, eternal experience of God's glory. The apocalypse of Barak is wrong. Resurrection is not reconstruction. It's transformation. That's Paul's assumption throughout all of this, and we're going to get to that in detail. But there's a really important caveat to all of that, which is that we'll still be us. Well, you need to hold those two things together at the very same time. There will be such a complete transformation that we're going to see how different our bodies will be. But our bodies will still be, we will still be us. And Paul assures us of that in three different ways. Firstly, look at all the, the we statements, the first person plural statements, verses 45, uh, sorry, 49, 51, 52, 57. We shall bear the image of the heavenly man. We will be changed. God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's going to transform us. There is that continuity between who we are today and who we will be forever in the new creation. And Paul emphasizes that secondly in verses 53 and 54. And when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians in Greek, he used the word this four times. So if you look in your English translation, I don't understand why, but neither the NIV or the ESV have translated all four of those words. But if you happen to have a Christian standard Bible, which is a great translation that a growing number of people are using, it translates all four of them. It brings out the emphasis that Paul is making here. So here on the screen is verses 53 and 54 from the CSB. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. When you repeat it that often, it sounds a bit clumsy, doesn't it? But it completely makes Paul's point. What is it that will be transformed for all eternity? It is this mortal corruptible body. The third way we know that there'll be this lovely continuity is by looking at Jesus. And we're going to spend more time in a bit thinking about how our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus. But for all of the differences with Jesus' resurrected body, it was his physical body because the tomb is empty. For all the differences that the disciples had, they physically met with, touched, ate with the risen Lord Jesus. <coughs> so it's we, it's us who will be transformed. It's our mortal corruptible bodies that will become immortal and incorruptible. And all of that will take place so that our bodies will be like Jesus. Continuity. But while all that's true... <laughs> our resurrection bodies will be transformed. And that shouldn't surprise us. Shouldn't surprise us, says Paul, for a whole heap of reasons. One of which is that we are surrounded by the pattern of death to life 
all around us. And perhaps nowhere is that more obvious and easy to understand than when it comes to seeds and bulbs. Now, I intended to bring a pot uh, that Lottie and I planted about a month ago, and in the busyness of coming out, I completely forgot. Our pot's about this big, about this tall, uh, and in it, Lottie and I have done the Monty Don trick for the very first time of having three tiers of bulb planting. Has anybody done that before? Does it work, Jenny? It does. Excellent. Well, you can ask Lottie in the spring whether it's worked for us or not, uh, but she'll be glad to know from Jenny that hopefully it will. Um, what we've planted at the very bottom is a bulb that looks like this. Does anybody know what that is? Tulip. Lots of you have said it. It's a tulip bulb. It doesn't look very pretty right now, does it? And what we've done, I mean, it's a living thing, it's not dead, but we've buried it so that in about four months' time or so, depending on the weather that the Lord gives us in the spring, we're hoping that our little pot will look a lot like this. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but what's remarkable is how different the bulb is to the plant. And what does Paul tell us as we work through this lovely description of what's going on in verses 38 and, oh, sorry, 37 and onwards? See, as, as we plant a seed or a bulb into the ground, it in one sense dies, doesn't literally die, of course, but in one sense it's buried in the ground and then God gives it a brand new body with all of that beautiful foliage and flower that is one and the same with the bulb, but you can see the difference. And Paul points to another reason why we shouldn't be surprised by the need for a different body in verses 39 and 40. You just look around you <laughs> at all of the different bodies that God has placed, not just in the world, but in the universe. So there are different bodies for humans and animals and birds and fish. There's a pile of pictures on that screen, God willing. Uh, you just imagine the different textures, the different size, the different function, the different way that those creatures made by God in his beautiful creation live in our world. And that's to say nothing of the, the bodies, the heavenly bodies, the earthly bodies in verse 40. There's some discussion about whether that's a reference to angelic beings as opposed to earthly beings or whether, given verse 41, whether what Paul is actually describing is, is the planets and all of space that we look out onto and reminded just in that sense of variety in God's creation in the cosmos. And all of the different ways in which both physical, earthly, human, animal, and into space, all of the, cre all of the creation in the stars are so different. So different, verses 40 and 41 that they are created with bodies that are appropriate to their place. And in their place, each one brings glory to God. That's what Paul is saying. Look, look around you. Death begets life. And into all that variety of life, God gives different kinds of bodies such that everybody, every body, is ready to bring glory to God in its place. Now from verse 42, Paul applies all of that experience of life to your resurrection if you're a Christian here this morning. And he says to you and to me that a perishable body will be raised imperishable. 
that a dishonorable body will be raised in glory, that a weak body will be raised in power, that natural bodies will be raised as spiritual bodies. You take all of those first set of adjectives, they're describing our bodies here and now in this fallen world that we live in. So it's not to say that when God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, that all of this applied to them. We're talking about the impact of sin on God's good creation because of their disobedience. And ever since then, our bodies perish. I don't know how many steps you try and do in a day. I don't know how carefully you monitor your diet, your fluid intake, the number of vitamins you're consuming, how many times you manage to go to the gym in the week. But your body will perish. And weak, perishing bodies don't belong in the new creation. Our bodies right now are dishonorable. Which is not to deny, again, the goodness of God's perfect creation. It is to say that the feet God has given you you have chosen to carry you to places you shouldn't have gone. That the eyes God has given you, you have chosen to use to behold things you shouldn't have seen. That the ears God has given you, you have chosen to listen to the things that God has commanded you not to listen to. And for all of those inputs, the mind God has given you has played those things over and over and over again so that it is a fair description of us here and now that our bodies are dishonorable. Dishonorable bodies don't belong in the new creation. The glorious hope of the Christian message is that perishing, dishonorable, weak bodies get transformed into imperishable, glorious, and powerful bodies that will last forever. Then you get to verse 44 and you think, oh, it feels like we're going backwards, Paul, in our argument here. What are you doing in contrasting natural bodies with spiritual bodies? Isn't that exactly what you're trying to say isn't true? Isn't that a hope of, don't worry when you die, your body dies and your spirit lives on forever, which would undermine everything that Paul is saying in this chapter. I think... Tom Schreiner explains this as clearly as anybody that I've read during the course of this week. What, what Paul means by a spiritual body is a body empowered and animated by the Holy Spirit. In ways that our bodies currently indwelt by the Holy Spirit cannot be fully animated by his power. Schreiner goes on to say, The body's physical, but in contrast to one's earthly body, it lives in a wholly new realm, for it is now a body enlivened by the Holy Spirit. So come back to my dining table. What kind of body will we have in the new creation? What Paul's explaining here is we can't really answer that question. We can't answer it because our bodies are going to be transformed so they are fit and ready to flourish in that new creation. And we're not there yet. It's impossible for us to fully understand how completely different that new creation will be. And for that creation, God will give us a body as he gives a new body to the tulip bulb that flowers and to all the creatures in his creation. But we can say a bit more. 
And that's what Paul goes on to do in verses 45 to 53. Our bodies will be like Jesus. The best way you can illustrate how this transformation is going to look like is by looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only person in history who has walked our planet with a resurrected body. And what Paul does in verse 45 and onwards is he goes back to that covenant headship, that federal headship argument that he used back in verses 22 and 23. Now, we've all been watching uh, federal heads do things on behalf of their people all week. It's just you maybe haven't thought in those categories. And I know that there are an enormous number of people involved in the negotiations in Qatar. But just to keep it simple for me this evening, you've got Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, pleading on behalf of his people. And you've got Ismail Hanayeh negotiating for the Palestinian people. Because of the agreement of those two heads, there is right now a ceasefire. And hostages and detainees are being freed from one country to another. The lives of those women and children and men, increasingly as the numbers go on, they are being transformed because of what these federal heads have agreed. And Paul takes that logic to its ultimate level in verses 45 to 49. He thinks of us as being completely Our lives being completely determined by what our federal heads, either the first Adam or the last Adam, Jesus, have done. So the earthly body that we have is what we've inherited from Adam. God made that body good for this world, even though now it's ruined by sin. But for everyone who's in Christ, or back in verse 23, we saw last week the language he uses in this chapter is belonging to Christ. For every Christian, our sure and certain hope is that in the resurrection, we'll have a heavenly body from our heavenly head, from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the body that God is going to give us, a body that is freed from sin and suffering and will last forever. Which doesn't mean, look at verse 50, even in light of verse 50, that our heavenly body is a spiritual body and not a physical body. And we know that because we're looking at Jesus Jesus had that resurrected body that could sit with his disciples, that could prepare them a meal and eat with them. And it's his body that ours will be like because he's our federal head. But Jesus' body wasn't just an ordinary earthly body after it had been resurrected. You remember that Jesus could move from one place to another in inexplicable speed that defied the laws of our country. He could walk into a room through a locked door in order to be with his people. His body was recognizably human. It was Jesus' body that had been in the tomb, but it wasn't constrained by the rules and the limitations of planet Earth. Now, I can't promise you that we will all be able to do all those things in the new creation. I am personally longing that we'll be able to fly. But in the new creation, there'll be no disappointment. So if I'm wrong, I won't be sad about it. And that's fine. 
What Paul focuses on is less what bodies will be able to do and more what our bodies will be like. And they will be like Jesus. Because verse 51, they will be transformed to be made like him. Our bodies will be prepared in such a way that they will then be able to live forever in that perfect creation. Not one strand of your resurrected DNA will ever want to or be able to sin against God. Your resurrected feet will always run towards the King of Kings. Your ears will only ever hear what is good and right and true. And your mind will be full of Jesus. I can't wait. I really can't wait. And that's kind of Paul's point final thing that he has to say in this chapter is how we should wait. Because the whole point in us knowing something now about what our resurrected bodies will be like then is so that we would live differently today. That's the third point. The hope of our resurrection bodies should change the way we live today. Verse 55, Paul's quoting from Hosea, and to us, it sounds a little bit like the taunt that you might hear from the away fans in a sports match. You can just (laughs) uh, picture Paul shouting at death, hey, death, you're not stinging anymore. (laughs) And that's what he's saying. He's not belittling the sadness and the horror of death. There is only death in our world because there is sin and rebellion against God. That's the consequence of our sin. But for the question, the the sting of death is gone. Why? Look at verse 56. Because the sting of death is sin. I want you to look at that sentence very carefully. That's not the way we would normally write that sentence. Normally, we'd say it the other way around. That's what we're used to thinking. That's what Paul writes when he's writing in Romans 6, is it? The wages of sin is death. The consequence of our rebellion and sin, the wages, as it were, the thing that follows sin is death. That's the way we normally think of it. But now Paul puts it the other way around and he shows us that the logic works the other way too. Because what's he saying? He's saying that the sting of death is sin. This is why death is something that many fear. The sting in the tale of death is the prospect of punishment for unforgiven sins. That's what Paul is saying here. That's why the power of sin is the law. He doesn't mean that the law is sinful in any way. He means you you need to picture the law like that bright flashlight that is scanning over every single part of your life. It's exposing every bit of sin in your heart that you would see all of the different ways in which you have done things you shouldn't or failed to do things you should so that (coughs) you and I on our own deserve the judgment of God. And if you're carrying 
unforgiven sins to the grave, you'll have that sense of the weight of the fear of the sting of death. If that's you tonight, you need to know the gospel for yourself. You need to know what this table is all about. You need to know that the only uncreated one willingly took the perishable, weak body that we're going to symbolize by this bread upon himself in order to live the perfect life and fulfill God's law that none of us can. You need to know that when we break this And when we drink this blood, we are picturing for ourselves the willingness of the Son of God to give his life and die the death that we deserved in our place. Jesus did all of that so that when God raised him from the dead in that recognizable but completely transformed body, every single one of us would know that if we would repent of our sin and trust in Jesus, we are going to be with him when we die. And it really is as simple as that. There's a lot going on in our world that's really complicated. There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of challenge. There's a lot of pushback and rethinking of worldviews. But the gospel's really simple. We're sinners. And the only way any and every one of us can be forgiven is if we repent of our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do that by the Spirit's help this evening. You can know that not only will the Lord Jesus Christ hold and carry you through death so that you need not fear it, but he will give you a resurrected body like his in the new creation. And if you know that to be true, you know how precious verse 57 is. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an absolutely glorious climax, not just to this chapter, but in one sense to the whole of this book. This is the comfort and the confidence that we can have in the face of death. But what's interesting is Paul doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't focus on comfort for the future. He focuses, verse 58, on the challenge in the present. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, our confidence in the resurrection is meant to change the way we live today. And when Paul wrote that, he meant it as literally as you could imagine it. So I want you to think for a minute. What is the absolutely worst thing that could possibly happen to you if you faithfully and courageously live for Jesus? What is the single greatest fear that would control the way that you live 
and hold you back from wholehearted service to God. It's the fear of being killed, right? That's the ultimate fear. It's not a trick question. It's that fear that all of that courage and all of that willingness to just give and give and give again for the kingdom of God might result in your death. What does Paul say throughout this chapter? He doesn't say be reckless about your life. He doesn't say that the process of dying isn't horribly sad and painful and difficult for Christians and non-Christians alike. He says that if Jesus has defeated the fear and the threat of death, there is nothing the devil can control you with. So the only thing that would hold us back from serving Jesus, from giving for his glory, from going to places that we might otherwise never have imagined in order to tell other people about Jesus, the only thing that would hold us back now is us, not our safety. Because Jesus has secured that forever. Now, the only way that we will put that into action is if we are convinced of what Paul says here. That if you are a Christian, your best days are yet to come. Not if you're a teenager as you look forward to your 20s when you've got through university, you can have your own house and car. Not if you're in your 20s when you're thinking about your 40s that you might be able perhaps to have a family. Not when you might be into your 50s and you'd be able to be at the top of your game in your career. Not in the tiredness of all of that when you get into your 60s and 70s and you're retired and you haven't got all of those other things to worry about. The best days in your life are the ones beyond the grave. When you will have a resurrected body that will be unable to sin. That will be able to be in the presence of God forever. And that will be just like Jesus. If you've got that in your eyes, you're ready to serve the King who says to every one of us this evening, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.